Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. Hi, and welcome to our next episode of the Y87 podcast. With me today is author and trout fisherman, Paul Dwyron. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Tim. It's good to see you. Nice to see you. So where are you these days? I am back where I belong. <laughs> I think when I was at Yale, everybody but me knew that you know, I came from Maine and that I would eventually return to Maine. You know, it was, I think it was stamped all over me. But of course, I thought I was going to drift around the country or around the world. But I have found that Maine is my place. It's where I belong. And I live on the Maine mid-coast. I actually live in the town of Camden. And I have a writing office, because I am a novelist, in Rockland, which advertises itself as the lobster capital of the world. So I, I look out my window to a bunch of lobster boats coming into port, and it's a pretty sweet life. Now, as I remember it, when we graduated from college, you were working on a novel about a Maine lobsterman who was hired <laughs> to track down a missing woman, as I remember. Do I have that about right? You do, yes. I better make sure that I've burnt the last copies of that. <laughs> there are probably one or two in my parents' attic somewhere that I need to dispose of, so yeah. Yeah, and I found it interesting because I remember you wanting to be a novelist from the time we were in college, but it took you a while to publish your first novel. Your first novel came out, what, 2014? No, Something 2010. Like 2010. Yeah, and it was basically my first real published piece of fiction, believe it or not. You know, when I was at Yale, I was passionately interested in writing and I really wanted to be a novelist, but I was not, you know, one of the literary people of our class, of which there are many, <laughs> a great many who have gone on to a lot of fame. So, you know, I wasn't known, I guess, as a writer because what I was interested in doing just wasn't. I suppose it wasn't the kind of thing that you did in college. Back then, I liked mysteries. I liked fantasy novels. I liked science fiction. I liked basically things with big stories, books with big stories. I'm going to ask you about your series because I have not read the whole thing, but I've read the first few. And I know you've done some short stories and novelettes mm -hmm. too. So we'll talk about that. But here's my fundamental question to you. You leave college in 1987 and you don't publish your first novel until 2010. You know, a lot of people with that much time will have given up their dream, but you didn't. How did you keep that dream alive during that period? That is a great question. Well, let's see. You know, there certainly were moments where I thought, you know, I, this is not who I'm supposed to be. My parents had a family friend who had a daughter who wanted to be an opera singer. This was, she's not a Yale person, and, and they paid for opera lessons. But it's okay. Some of my best friends are not Yale people. That's fine. Exactly. Exactly. My wife is from Middlebury, and you know I forgive her for that. And she forgives me for going to Yale. Yeah. But anyway, this, this you know, aspiring opera singer, she got 
years of training and her parents paid for her to live in Vienna and and all this stuff and she just didn't have what she needed to be an opera singer and i remember like paying attention to her and saying my god am i like the novelist version of her is this just some delusion i have about myself that i need to dispense with but i guess i just couldn't shake it there was a long period i would say in my 20s where i was sort of more interested in living the writer's lifestyle <laughs> than i was in actually writing anything <laughs> And that led me into some interesting adventures and misadventures and scrapes. But eventually, I did get serious about it. And I guess I, I should say I never really lost my seriousness about it. But I, was, I came to a realization, I think, about when I was in graduate school. I went to Emerson College in Boston because they gave me money <laughs> to go, which is always appealing. And, it, and this realization was, oh, my God, I have nothing to write about. And that was what felt like it was holding me back. That changed, and I can talk about how did it change? Well, so what happened is is that after graduate school in Boston, I you know again had no plans of returning to Maine, but I was offered a job, and here you just you have graduate school loans and and you have an MFA degree that you have you know don't know what to do with, and somebody just suddenly saying, "Oh, here, come and work for us." had some appeal at that stage. And I happened to meet very soon afterward, my girlfriend, who's now my wife for a long time now. And she did two things for me. She reintroduced me to my love of the main outdoors because I had been a very outdoorsy kid. Her big thing is bird watching. And she made it a condition of our courtship that I take up bird watching <laughs> if I wanted to be here. <laughs> and believe me, there was a lot of demands I've heard people make. That's not so yes. bad as far as demands go. Yeah, but you know, there was there were moments where I was saying, I don't know about this. But now I have to say, in all fairness to myself, I'm a pretty damn good birder <laughs> 26, 25 years later. <laughs> That's great. Fishing is my real passion, but I just love everything about the outdoors and not just the main outdoors. But she helped me realize that there was something that I actually did know about. And that thing was the Maine woods primarily. You know, I knew what it was like. I knew how the Maine woods, if you go to the mountains around, you know, Sugarloaf and Jackman and that, and you go there in July, there's a lot of evergreens. It smells differently in August than it does in July, just from the leaves drying out, or the, the needles drying out and and all this stuff. And I had all this very specific knowledge about this place and a real desire to bring that place to life for readers. At the same time, my wife introduced me to contemporary mysteries, which I had not been reading. And as a teenager, I had read Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie and Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. But you know, when I got to Yale, I started reading Hemingway and Faulkner and Fitzgerald and Raymond Carver. And you know, had made this decision that I was going to be a literary writer, which I realized as I started to read these mysteries, because she said to me, she said, you know, Paul, these are much better than you think that they are. And they were. So she started me with, you know, Tony Hillerman, and I sort of graduated to P.D. James, and of course, John Le Carre, if you characterize him as a mystery writer, but also James Lee Burke and Walter Mosley. And there are just so many great writers out there. And I realized that the kinds of books that they were writing were the kinds of books I wanted to read, 
but also the kinds of books that I wanted to write. So I said to myself, okay, I know only one thing, (laughs) and that's the Maine Woods. (laughs) I know that I want to write a book that compels readers to turn pages. So I should write a mystery. And where mystery and the outdoors intersected was in this character of a Maine game warden named Mike Bowditch. So I came to this realization, you know, this was 10 years after graduating from Yale, and it took me six years to write the first book, and then longer to find an agent and get it published and that sort of thing. So that span of years between graduation and actually sort of arriving as a novelist, I was not inactive. I was, <laughs> I was making progress slowly. Well, I would say successful because you write a Mike Bowditch novel once a year. I do. It looks like that's about your pace right now. It is, which yeah. Is prodigious. <laughs> I would say a couple things. First, while they are set in the woods, and there's plenty about the woods and the animals that live in them, it's much more about the people. And I have not read all of your novels, but I found the characters in them compelling and the things that they were grappling with real. And not just the mystery part, but the personal Mm. aspects of the characters. So I think you sell yourself a little short if you think this is just about the woods, because it's about a lot more than that. Thank you. And I guess my, my question to you is, you must be an observer of the people around you, because the character, a main game warden and the other game wardens and the other people that they interact with, seem to come very much from Maine. And you capture their essence. Like, how do you, do you spend time observing the people around you and sort of filing it away? How does that work? Yeah, I described the character of Mike Bowditch as a compulsive noticer. And I think that describes me as well. You know, I really do appreciate what you're saying about the people in the books, because obviously that's what the books are about. It's actually kind of comical. I've gotten to know the game wardens. You know, you write 12 books about a game warden and game wardens sort of take you under their wing because they respect the fact that you're trying to represent them accurately in this sort of thing. And I've been with them so many times when a little kid will come up to a game warden and say, oh, I really want to be a game warden because I love animals. And then the warden will turn to me after the kid is gone and say, all of the animals I deal with are dead. And I have a line in one of the books that says, you know, it really isn't, their work is not about animals. Their work is about people and what people will do when no one is watching. Because they do work alone in the woods, and which makes them uniquely vulnerable because there's no backup. And in Maine, they're also, I don't know if this is true everywhere in the country. It's true most places, but they are fully sworn officers of the law. They go to the police academy and do special training and they they carry AR-15s. They have them in their trucks hidden uh, and tactical shotguns and pretty high-powered handguns and this sort of thing. But, you know, most of their work is really just talking with people and getting people to open up about the guy down the road who's poaching deer or you know, seeing them involved, for instance, in a search, because that's the thing that they oversee in Maine is Alzheimer patient goes missing, a toddler goes missing, and they're the ones who are called out to find those people. And usually, I mean, you find them, of course, by typically by asking questions of people, by getting to know who they are, because that dictates more than the geography of where they might have gone, you know? And so that that element too, I think, 
helped me realize that that needed to be a big part of who this character was, you know, how he related to other people. And, and it did mesh with my interest in, in Mainers specifically, but, you know, like anywhere I go, I'm paying attention. And Yeah, it also seems like the game wardens in your books are preserving or protecting the physical space of a way of life. So in that way, they're sort of guardians of an entire way of life. And I found that aspect of your book fascinating because we're in a time of developments and changes in our way of life, obviously in a changes to the environment yeah. that might be changing the main woods you love so much. Well, yeah. they, they not, not that it might be, it is. It is, yeah. And you have these people trying to preserve particular social mores and responsibilities that mediate the relationship between people and the animals and each other. Right. As you say, this sort of main way of life, which is, I think, really, to be honest, it's more of a rural way of life that you can apply across the country. I mean, it's different, obviously, in different regions, but there are also similarities. You know, one of the things about about the, the wardens that changed, not while I was writing the book, but sort of before I started writing the books was that they used to be, the term would be fishing game officers, right? You know, you if people were poaching or taking too many fish or whatever, it was kind of a low stakes <laughs> law enforcement, let's put it that way. But then along came all of these other, principally in the form of all-terrain vehicles and snowmobiles, these machines sort of moved in and suddenly game wardens were in charge of investigating snowmobile crashes and, you know, policing drunk ATV riders and their job changed a lot and it continues to evolve. And I think when I talk to the older wardens, I hear this wistfulness, you know, for what their job used to be, but also, you know, what the state used to be. And I, I often describe Matt Bowditch because he starts the series as a young man the youngest old fart you've ever met. Because it takes a certain kind of person who sort of has this old soul to want to get into that line of work because it isn't, it's so detached from so much of the way we live now as Americans. You know, it, it's not high tech, it's not fast paced, it's not, it's as far from sort of the, the mores of Silicon Valley as you can get, you know, just I'm charmed by that. And I'm also charmed by the or challenged by the idea of trying to to capture a place as it goes through you know, this huge transition. It's transformative. And, and that's also one of the challenges of writing a series is that you have a main character who you want to feel like he's the same guy from book to book, but I've had him grow personally and professionally over the course of the series. Yeah, no one's going to be the same person over a period of time. Hopefully, if they have any introspection, they're going to grow. Exactly. But they could change in a way that's not good. So, I mean, the other thing I find interesting is you try to depict this rural lifestyle with respect and so without caricature. Mm. And I think that's something that's missing in our current political dialogues, our cultural dialogues. We have no way to mediate between mm -hmm. people who live the kind of rural lifestyle you describe have guns, are in the woods with a more urban or suburban lifestyle without those things. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please remember that this podcast is being brought to you by the 35th reunion of the greatest class Yale College has ever known, the great class of 1987. Our reunion will be in New Haven, Connecticut, 
June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Pearson College. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the conversation. Do you think there's a responsibility to try of novelists or other artists try to describe and mediate these tensions? Actually, I think artists are probably better positioned. I mean, artists in the broad sense are probably better positioned to deal with that kind of thing than even like journalists are because journalists have this sort of explanatory, you know, approach, right? That their job is to explain us, each other to each other, right? You know, one another or whatever. And what I try to do, what a novelist tries to do is you try to get inside the skin of another human being, right? You try to see through the eyes of a person unlike yourself, if you're really ambitious. And that means granting them the dignity of their own humanity, right? Not allowing them to become caricatures or grotesques or whatever. You sort of say, well, wait a minute, why do they believe what they believe? And there are a couple of things I think that are especially applicable to writing mysteries or crime novels. One is, in life, I have learned that people tend to act more out of weakness than out of malice. And that's helpful in sort of writing about the circumstances around a crime. Uh, it's also sort of a truism in, in crime writing that villains don't think of themselves as villains. And this is true of the, the villainous people I've known in my life, right? We are all the heroes of our own lives and go to great lengths to justify our actions to ourselves. You know, so we may be doing something horrible, but in our mind, it's justified. It's worthwhile, you know. And again, so when you're writing a villain, you have to sort of, if you do it well, which is taking me a long time to learn, you have to sort of step back and say, this person is doing something for a reason. I need to understand how they can possibly be justifying it, or I risk making them a caricature. And so this artistic process, right, the literary process is fortunately pretty useful to living <laughs> you know it helps me to not judge other people and to not leap to conclusions about them based upon snippets of conversation i overhear or how they look or what how they dress or what they drive or it's not my job i can i'll leave the judgments you know to others that's so you talk about the artistic process and you've mentioned your wife a couple of times and i wanted to ask you a couple of questions about her sure. because she's a poet yes and so what's it like to have a novelist and a poet together because <laughs> it's just like you come at it using words and but you use them very differently i went, I went to her website she's got haikus yeah. so you speak in novels and she speaks in haikus <laughs> you know, what's that like yeah, so my wife's name is Kristen Lindquist, and she is a poet. She, uh, we both had master's degrees. We actually were both at the Breadloaf Writers Conference at the same time in 1989 and didn't meet, amazingly. Wow. Although we think, I think I may have met her at the end and said, oh, she's cute, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she doesn't remember me. Anyway, you know, for, I mean, it's good that we're both, not both novelists in the sense that we're not competing in that way. But it's, I do think it's hilarious that, I mean, she was a, a free verse poet when I met her, and she's become progressively much more interested in Japanese forms, haiku and haibun, renge, 
all of these things which she's taught me about and which are widely misunderstood by Americans. You know, we have this idea, for instance, about haiku that it's this purely syllabic form, you know, 575, and it's not. The Japanese understanding of it is very different, and I can go on about that forever. But she teaches haiku classes, and one of the principles of haiku is that you don't use similes or metaphors. You use images, and the images sort of have to stand on their own and sort of be suggestive. And, you know, here my favorite crime writer is Raymond Chandler, who is can't let a paragraph go by without a like a world-class you know, metaphor or simile going in it. And I found I could not write haiku. My mind just doesn't work that way. I'm always wanting to say, this is like this, this is like that. But she's a great reader of my work. And I mean, I try my best to be a good reader of her work. So it's fun, you know. I'll, we were on the island of Monhegan, which is a special place for us and a, a place that I would recommend anybody who's not come to Maine or who has come to Maine you should do a day trip to Monhegan Island. It is, it's like stepping into another world. Edward Hopper painted it and Rockwell Kent and Jamie Wyatt has a house out there and it's gorgeous and strange and unique. And I was walking behind her through this, down this trail through this place called Cathedral Woods and I saw her fingers going and she was counting with her fingers and I realized she was counting syllables, haiku syllables. She was writing a haiku at her head because syllables do play a part. <laughs> and it was just sort of fun to realize here she is. I'm sort of observing her writing while she's not writing. And God knows how, if she does that with me, I have to assume that she does, you know, that she, yeah, she sees, right. sees me at a restaurant looking at somebody and knows that I'm, I'm making mental notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, it's funny. Well, I was reading her website earlier today, and this morning I know that one of our sons woke up on a mountaintop in the oh, Rocky Mountain Ridge. Nice. He's hiking the ridge line. Is probably on Rocky Top right now. And one of the haikus she just posted about was about the mist coming up to the summit. So it was mm -hmm. about a summit. So I texted him. I mean, he'll get it when he gets down because he's not in communication, but it just so captured what I imagined he was doing, this perfect image. So that was really terrific. And that's exactly what she did. She painted an image with the haiku and it was very powerful. So good for you that you get to have this literary dynamism in your life every day. Mm -hmm. So let me just ask you a couple of questions about the trout. So <laughs> how did you become a trout fisherman? I mean, you, but you're not just a trout fisherman. You're like, you're a licensed guide, which I know is, I have a cousin who's a licensed guide. So I know it's not, you don't just go to like trout class. Like you no. actually have to go get a license. You know, it was, it, that too was an evolution. I mean, I had nobody in my life who was a fly fisherman. So it was something that I picked up over time. I sort of graduated, you know, from we, in Maine, on the Maine coast as they do up and down the East Coast, we have striped bass. I first started fishing for striped bass with live eels. And then I graduated to artificial lures. And, you know, now I won't go striped bass fishing without a fly rod. <laughs> it's the only way I fish for striped bass. And it's not about any kind of snobbery. It was just something that I realized about myself as, as I was sort of, you know, learning more about fish, spending more time fishing hanging out with more fishermen was, uh-oh, if I ever take up fly fishing, I'm doomed because it's going to just consume me. I just knew 
that I was going to love everything about it. And what I do love about it is that to be a good fly fisherman or fly, fly fisher, you need to have a pretty rich understanding of how fish live, of what they eat, of you know how they their habits change, you know, depending upon the level of the water, the season, what's hatching, all this sort of stuff. You have to think like and a fish. Then you have to think like a fish, and you have to learn to present these artificial flies and nymphs and streamers to them in a way that is enticing, you know, because they can recognize if something that just, if your fly is dragging along the surface of the water in a weird way, they won't take it. I just became very, very passionate about it and decided at a certain stage that I would, I wanted to get my guides license. I'm friends with a lot of guides. They know way more than I do, but I said, I really, I really want to challenge myself. I really want to see if I can do this. And it was going to be my backup plan if the writing didn't work out. <laughs> oh, I think there are a lot of trout up in Maine are really happy that your books are selling out. <laughs> so now we're at the point of the podcast where we get to our lightning round. All right. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of like very rapid fire questions. Okay, I'll do my best. All right. First of all, favorite place to go fish? Grand Lake Stream in eastern Maine. Is there a place that you always wanted to go fish that you haven't been to yet? It's on your fishing bucket list. The Madison River out west. What is the most underrated novel? Actually, I do have an answer for this. Oh, my God. I I figured you would. That's why I'm asking you the question. Robert Louis Stevenson's The uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's not what you think it is, that book. I challenge anybody to go back and look at it and read it. And you will be surprised about some of the ideas that are in there. It's, it's, I can explain, but okay. <laughs> this is a lightning round. Okay, well, that's fine. It's the lightning round. You don't have to explain. Yeah. You just put it out there. It's for our listeners to go look it up. Exactly. Is there a main food you think we should have had in New Haven? Yes. I can always say lobster, but whoopie pies. Whoopie pies. Oh, they're good. They're actually, my mother-in-law makes whoopie pies. So maybe it's old school New Haven and we just didn't have it as much. uh, Well, it's actually, there's this big controversy about whether it's it's a Maine thing or it's like a Pennsylvania Dutch thing. And I have to say that I think it's actually a Pennsylvania Dutch thing, but we've all right. Well, you've also co-opted it. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Um, this has been terrific. I can't wait to read your next book. When's it coming out? Oh, God. The next one is coming out on June 28th. It's called Hatchet Island. Hatchet Island. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so everyone can go to our union and then three weeks later get Hatchet Island. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks so much again. Thank you, Tim. In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings, one Yale College class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while. An in-person reunion, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022, we will be gathering in Pearson College. Be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? 
Who or what is Abula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.